Thank you, brother. Yes, it's true. Mother's Day is just around the corner. And um, we need to get together. <laughs> the, the men of the church have something planned. It is so secretive that I don't even know what it is. <laughs> but it is, it is something that we're going to do very special for you ladies. Amen? Yes, that's right. That's why. Well, neither do the moms. It's very secretive. It's very something that we're going to... Oh, yeah, we're going to do something really nice for you guys. I want you guys to really realize how much we appreciate the mothers of our church. So um, please be here. When you, if you, I pray you get a chance to be here that Sunday. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Philippians. All right, the book of Philippians. Today is the day that's uh, celebrated throughout the, well, throughout the world. As far as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, this, is, this is one event that everyone celebrates, everybody looks at it, and I know many people probably celebrate it with wrong motives or in, in wrong intentions or wrong ideas. Um, people have taken this day, as I used to, uh, and, and celebrated as uh, a barbecue time to get together with friends and family, and, and, I, and I believe and I hope that in, during that time when people are getting together in their barbecues and friends and family, bunny eggs and and hunting eggs and all. And I pray that the gospel message is uh, received and proclaimed and received by those that are part of the body of Christ. Because, as we'll see today, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was necessary. Somebody once asked, why, why did it have to be a crucifixion? And, and, and why so public? And why so vile and wicked? Why so mean why is it that he was the only one crucified? How is that to, to be even possible? What, what, what was the purpose behind all the blood and the scourging? And, you know, what, what is that all about? Why would God want to do that to his son? And so, very, very, right up front, we have to realize when we start asking the question, why, one of the things that pops up automatically is that, you know, we're, we're questioning God in a sense, like, okay, God, you just don't, understand us. So we're asking you, why did you even do that? Why do you even allow suffering? Why is even Satan part of the whole equation? And, and so when we are, we're talking about theology, and I want to give you a theology of the crucifixion today, and, and I pray that you can, you can see it unfold before your eyes as to the purpose behind it. And, and part of that was celebrated last Sunday with our uh, Seder. The Passover meal is a very important celebration for the Jewish people. It was very important for the Christians as well, for the first century Christians. Jesus Christ told them, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. Now, we've taken that to mean the, the bread and the juice. And as we found out last week, oh, it was more than just bread and juice. Yes, it is the bread and it is the wine that Jesus part, partook of and handed out to his disciples. It is that, but the significance behind it is way more than that. For those of you that weren't able to be with us last Sunday, it's not just one event where Jesus took bread and he took juice. It has no relevance, no meaning as to what does that mean? Well, Jesus said, do this, and we do it. Some people do it with crackers and soda. Some people do it with all kinds of different uh, parts. But when you see it unfold in the Seder, you recognize and you realize that Jesus Christ had to be crucified. He had to be sacrificed. He had to shed blood. He had to give his life. He had to do the things that we're going to talk about today that he did. That was pretty cool. And so as we go through this portion of scripture, I want to start off in the book of Philippians and only because we finished Ephesians. And as I've been going, if you've been going along with me uh, these last several years, a few years now, We've gone from book to book to book, and we've gone through all the New Testament books, uh, and then we started in Acts, and then Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Uh, we did uh, Galatians, Ephesians, and now we're in Philippians. And it just so happens that in the book of Ephesians, there is one. We're going to start off kind of in the middle. Okay, we're going to start off kind of in the middle. There, there are only four chapters in the book of Philippians, so we should be able to get through it pretty quick. But I, I'd like for you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. And, and we're going to go over this again when that time comes in Philippians chapter 2. And in, in this portion of Scripture, and I just need to let you know that just like in the book of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, uh, these books were written, these letters were written from prison. Paul is in prison. He's ready to be executed. He's getting ready to be handed up. And so he's reflecting on his life, and he's writing to the churches. He's responding to some events that have happened. And in the book of Philippians, it's, it's probably one of the, the, one of the most joyous books 
ever. As a matter of fact, you'll see throughout the whole process of the book of, uh, of Philippians, and I've, I've entitled this series on Philippians, Finding Joy in the Darkness. Finding Joy in the Darkness. In the darkest places, Paul was in prison. Paul was uh, beaten. Paul was getting ready to be, be beheaded. And he found joy, and he told us to be joyful at all times. And like I said, I'm going to explain that a little bit more today. We're going to focus on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2 of Philippians chapter 2, this portion of Scripture is really focused more on the unity of the church. There was disunity in the church. There were other people coming in with a different doctrine, a different gospel, a different teaching. And part of that was that, you know, in order to be a Christian, because you're Jewish or you're not Jewish, basically is what it was, you have to become Jewish like us. So you'll have to be circumcised. You have to follow the customs and the laws and all the traditions. And Paul was very, very adamant. No, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. You don't need another gospel. And any other gospel that tells you you must do certain things to be saved is telling you what Paul has been trying to tell us. No. So there was a group of people trying to divide the church. People were starting to backbite. And he says, look, guys, I am in chains for the gospel message that I proclaim to you. Receive it because what Jesus Christ did on the cross is he brought us all together. He brought the the old man and the new man. He brought us all together. He brought the Jewish nation and the Gentiles together. There was this huge divide. But the cross of Jesus Christ was necessary. It was necessary. It's essential to the Christian faith. The resurrection, more than anything else, points to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. So as we celebrate this day, as you celebrate it with your friends and family, wherever you may go, and those of you that are listening online, wherever you may go, you celebrate, you're calling it Easter. And it's okay. I mean, you can call it Easter. I don't. I choose not to for, well, those are my convictions as far as what happened on that day. It wasn't Ashtar that we're celebrating. Ashtar was the goddess of that time, of that day. And so they called that season or that festival Ashtar and the, the celebration of Ashtar and the resurrection of Jesus Christ just so happened to fall in the same time. And since then, it has been so watered down. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has been so watered down that we have it even today in our own society and all over the world. Because the emphasis, if you ask most kids today, they'll say, well, it's about Jesus, bunnies, and eggs. You know, and, and it's a very sad thing that people line up at the malls to, be, um, to, to take pictures with a bunny. And like this one kid once said for Christmas, they, they walk into the mall and says, Mom, what's this line for? Well, that's the line for people to take pictures with Santa. And he kind of looks around and he says, so where's the line to take pictures with Jesus? You know, and, and, it's, and it's that mentality that we've watered down, we've gotten rid of, we don't understand the full impact of the crucifixion. Let me just read these verses to you. You've got some outlines. And we're going to go over this. And, and basically, I, I want to share with you that, that God is on the cross. That God on the cross himself, he died for me. That's the amazing grace. That's the amazing love that you, my king, would die for me. In Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and it reads like this. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, thank you once again for this beautiful poem, this hymn that was sung in the early church, this, this concise uh, 
these concise verses that give us the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ and how he came onto this planet and how he sacrificed himself and how he gave himself for us. And now that this name, this name of Jesus, which was, which was vilified, which was blasphemed, which was, which was cast out, that this name is now the name above all names that we worship and we thank you, Father, for that. So I pray that you lead us this morning in the understanding of this portion of Scripture and what it means for this Resurrection Sunday, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. As I mentioned, this is mainly focusing on the unity of the church. There's divisions going on. And he says, Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if you found anything in Christ Jesus that should bring you together, stop this division, stop this backbiting, stop this, you know, getting at each other. This is not what it's all about. It's not about competition. You know, who wears a a, a prettier hat or a beautiful dress or who drives the best car and, and who looks the best at church? It's not about that. And unfortunately for a lot of places, it's become almost a fashion show. It's become a place of competition. And, and we, we tend to do so sometimes without even realizing and understanding. But what, what Paul is saying, if there's any encouragement in Jesus Christ, Jesus, who didn't, he was homeless. He didn't have a home. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have children. He didn't have a home. He didn't have a job. Yet he was the son of man and he led by example. And he told everyone that were to follow him, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross daily and follow me, is what he had said. Leave everything behind. People would come up to him, you know, you know, Jesus, I want to follow you. But first, let me bury my parents. But first, let me finish plowing my field. But first, let me take care of my affairs at home. You see, and many people come to Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus, I want to make you first. But first, I want to put something else first before you. You got to be first in my life. I claim you to be first in my life. But first, there's something first before you becoming first. How does that even make sense? And we tell Jesus, yes, you are the Lord of my life. You are first in my life. But first. And Jesus says, you leave all that behind. You leave it behind and you move forward in the gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing that with other people. And he says, if you find any encouragement, any comfort, any love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, any sympathy, he says, complete my joy. If you know what Jesus Christ did, if you see what I'm doing for Jesus Christ, if you saw the ministry that I was able to do in front of you, how they stoned me, how they drug me out of town and how they left me for dead and how they beat me and how they I was shipwrecked and, and all these things that I did. If you find any joy in any of that, any comfort, please don't let it be as just a, eh, an example. Let it be something to motivate you to move forward. And then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. That is thinking of myself, myself only, out of conceit. But in humility, you know the word humility didn't actually come into the Greek vocabulary until after Paul had kind of brought it together. Humility, to think less of yourself. The Greeks for themselves, they were proud people. They were very proud people. And as a matter of fact, they didn't want to be seen as somebody that would lower themselves, a lower state of being, until Jesus Christ came on the scene and he humbled himself. This humiliating process that he went through voluntarily. You see, God the Father spoke it all into existence. Here's what I'm going to do. And here is how it's going to be from beginning to end. Jesus, go down and tell them everything I spoke into existence. Let them know what it is that I said. And Jesus says, yes, Father, God the Father. God sent God the Son. It's God incarnate. It's a difficult concept to understand. How is three people, how is one one God, three personalities? It's not three gods. It's not three people. It's one God. And he comes to you in three individual personalities. He's always God, he's always Jesus, and he's always the Holy Spirit. Some people have tried to develop this, what's called modalism. It's it's a heresy that was developed in the early, you know, the time that Jesus Christ was around. That it's kind of like water. You know, he's ice, uh, and he's liquid, and then he's steam. You know, just water is all these three. But see, water can't be ice and liquid at the same time. Or it can't be ice and steam at the same time. It's not like God is a mode this way today, and then tomorrow he's like this, and you know, or he has to change hats. He's always God, he's always Jesus, and he's always the Holy Spirit. But he's one. 
And we studied that and we talk about that. And it gets, we'll, we'll look at this a little bit more as we move forward. And he says, do not, but, but humble yourself like Jesus Christ did. And here's the beauty behind this beautiful song. People believe that this, was, this is one of the most uh, concise, theologically uh, perfect verses that talking about Jesus Christ, where he says in verse 4, look, let each of you look not on your, unto your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, have this mind, have this understanding. Have this, this, this mindset. Let everything you think about, everything you do, everything you know, have this mind among yourselves, which is in you, in Christ Jesus. The only way that you can humble yourself, the only way that you can have this, this attitude of humility, the only way that you can actually be that type of person is when Jesus Christ is in you. It is humanly impossible to be that humble. It is humanly impossible to really become like Jesus Christ, lest the Holy Spirit empowers you. You see, when I get disrespected, I want to disrespect back. I want to lash out. If that was me on the cross, I would be crying. Get me a lawyer. I need an attorney. Where's my friends? How come everybody left me? I did nothing wrong, would be my response. And, and as they are flogging and, and beating, I can see my mom just laying there and crying. And, and you know, you know... Help her. Somebody do something. And he didn't call, and he could have. You know that. He could have called 10,000 angels to help him. You cannot be that humble without the Holy Spirit. And even with the power of the Holy Spirit, I struggle. I grieve the Holy Spirit. I quench his power sometimes because of my humility is, is not being humbled. You see, being spirit-filled is not a person that, that exa- you know, exaggerates and, and does all these things flamboyant things in the church and being able to jump up and down, all these things. No, being filled with the Holy Spirit is being able to control yourself, your, your, your will, your ability, that only the Holy Spirit gives me the power to do so. And Paul says right here, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to his interest, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can do this. You can do this. Who though he was in the form of God. This word here, they've taken it and they've looked at it in so many different ways. And I studied it this last week as much as I could. It's the Greek word morphe. Morphe means it's the same exact thing. Not a copy. Not a, you know something extra. Or no, he, he is in the same exact morphe. Though he was in the morphe of God. The same exact God. And this is what Paul is trying to say. He's the same exact God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he says he's God, but he's not grasping that and claiming to be God, except for he's emptying himself. And he's saying, yes, I'm God, but at this moment, I am emptying myself because and taking on the form of a servant, of a slave. God, our creator, our king, our sustainer, everything that puts holds everything together. God himself made himself a slave. Last week, as we were going through Seder, there's a couple of rituals, a few rituals that we do. One of them is washing of hands. And we get this bowl and we, we dip our hands and we dip our hands again and we dry them off. And we pass it around so that everybody can wash their hands ceremoniously. You're not really, we don't have soap and water there. We were praying that everybody had washed their hands before they got there, okay? <laughs> I'm praying that your hands were washed. We had sanitizer if you needed it. But it was just to show, it was a ritual that they did. And so they did that to start the meal. And then the second time they did this, the second time that it was supposed to be done in the Jewish family, Jesus took the bowl and he placed the towel in his waist and he went around and he washed his disciples' feet. Now think about this. Think about this. See, a, a servant that washes feet is the lowest of the lowest of servants. It's kind of like starting off in the mailroom. It's kind of like being the gopher at any job site. You're the guy that just goes for stuff. Go for this and go for that. That's all you do. You're the lowest on the totem pole. Even the slaves that were to clean out the stalls of the horses. And, you know, what, what do you, well, I clean the stalls out of the horses. All that, all that smelly stuff. Oh, yeah, I clean it out. He says, what you used to do before? I used to wash feet. Oh, that's even better. That's, you're, you're better than the guy that washes feet. The slave, the lowest of the lowest slave is the one that they would use to wash people's feet. People would come in from outside and they would, they would be, their feet would be all muddied and dirtied and dusty because they didn't have the cobblestones as, as prevalent as they do now and the asphalt. And, and they would walk in and so before they even came in, they would have to sit to eat. They would recline sitting down. So you don't want to track all that stuff into the house. 
You had a slave. It was like a floor mat. You didn't even recognize he was there. Just like many of you probably don't even recognize the floor mat that I have in my front door. You come in, you just kind of wipe your feet and you, you go in because you don't want to track anything inside. This is what Jesus Christ, he humbled himself to that point. The master, the teacher, the creator of the universe, the one that made everything happen, that holds everything together. He humbled himself and he came in the form of a child born in a manger. Now imagine this. Can you imagine God, the father, his mother, Mary, having to change his diapers? You know, how, how humiliating is that? You know, I, I guess, I guess as, a, as a parent, you understand that. But some dads, they kind of go, oh, no, no, no. You know, let me go mow the lawn. I'm going to go do something else. This is not something that many people look forward to. Even some moms, if you confess, you oh, man, he really made a mess this time. He was in the form of a, ba- a helpless baby, one that had to be fed and trained and brought up. That's our God. That's our God. You see, he saw my sin. He, saw, he sees your sin. He saw the sin of the people. We're going to go over this here in just a little bit. And he had to intervene. And the only way to intervene is to provide a perfect sacrifice. So, number one, God is in the cradle. God in the cradle. He humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We've studied this before in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. You see, you cannot have life without death, and you cannot have death without life. When you're connected to him, when you're connected to Jesus Christ, you have life. When you're disconnected from Jesus Christ, the automatic uh, result is death. And so when Jesus Christ says, well, you must die, is because you weren't connected to life. When God says, and he comes and he unleashes his wrath on humanity, it's like, well, you're not connected to life. You didn't want to be connected to life. You said you wanted to be connected to life. You went to church and even prayed to be connected to life. But your, your life was not connected to life. Your life did not display a connection connected to the life. Your life displayed more of connection to death. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And when we understand that God is not punishing us because he's mean. He's not punishing us because we've done a lot of bad things. When God returns and he brings his son and sits him on the throne because he was on the cradle and he came in, he humbled himself and he was obedient unto death. It's because we are not connected to life. I mean, it's very simple. The problem is many people make it very difficult. If you look at this in the next verse, in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's God in the cradle. Number two, God on the cross. In verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, it had to be death. It had to be, there had to be blood. It had to be shed. Last week, we talked about the Passover, how the Passover, the angel of death passed over the house of the Israelites because they sprinkled blood on the doorposts. And so this Passover, they were told to celebrate it. But first of all, let me share this with you. You see, this death had to be a gruesome death, had to be a visible death, had to be a public death. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, please understand this right here, right now. That at the time of Paul, they didn't have what we have now, the New Testament. We can see everything that Jesus Christ had to do because we read the New Testament. We understand on how it is that he was crucified because of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke record. We understand that he's coming back one day, as explained in Revelation 19, verses 11 and 12 and on, that he's going to come back on a white horse with many diadems, many crowns. We understand that all these things are going to come to fruition because they've happened, they're happening, and they're going to happen. 
You see, but before Paul even penned this letter, before he even wrote to the, to the Corinthians, and now Philippians, before he even wrote this to, to the Corinthians, he says to them, you know, I'm del- what I delivered to you, I've already talked to you about this. I've already shared this with you. I've expressed it to you because Jesus Christ himself showed it to me. There were no books except for the Old Testament. But he says he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures. So somewhere in the Old Testament is the story of Jesus that is now unfolding before their very eyes. And I can take you, if you go with me, to, uh, to, to Genesis. To Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 2, actually. In Genesis chapter 2, after the Lord created everything, He put everything together. He created the heavens. He created the earth. He created the, the rivers. He created man. He created woman. The Lord God, in verse 15 in chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and kept it. And so once the garden was completed, God took Adam, put him in the middle of the garden, and says, I want you to keep the garden. I want you to hold it. And he said, and the Lord commanded. He didn't suggest. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you will surely die. You see, the commandment is for my benefit. The commandment is for your benefit. See, God didn't want them to have this understanding of good and evil. See, because right now everything is perfect. But because we have to understand what good is, now because of this evil that's in the world, now we have to see what evil is. So we see evil so we can understand what good is. We, we, we see goodness and we understand it because we know what evil is. And so God put this moral compass in us and we know in, intrinsically that inside we know that we are morally good or morally bad. And if you're, if you're a bit even honest with yourself, you know that each one of us are morally rotten and bad. None of us are perfect. None of us, including myself. And so when God said this, do not eat, I don't want you to eat that. Well, as we know, what happens in chapter 3 and he tells him, because the moment you do this, you're going to die. You, you separate from God's law, life. You have li- if you're connected to God, God's law, life, then you have life, eternal life. If you're separated from God's law, then you have death. It's just that simple. Then he says in verse 4 of chapter 3, But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So in essence... We want to be like God. We want to know the difference between good and evil. And we even see that evil, man, that's, evil is fun. Sin, as wicked as it is, it's fun. If it wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. If it was a bummer, nobody would get involved in it. And because we're sinners, we gravitate towards sin. And that sin has to be crushed. That sin has to be dealt with. That sin needs to be uh, eradicated. That sin in my life, in your life, has to be dealt with. Because God is just. He said, he didn't make up any just rules and say, okay, you know what? Eh, I'm going to save some of you and the rest of you guys I'm just going to cast to hell. It's not a rule that he made. It's out of his moral righteousness. Because he's a just God. And he's a God of love. He has to be just. And he has to punish sin. Otherwise, you know, why even follow him if he's not going to punish those sinners out in the world? Why even do what he says? If, you know, he's going to let me in anyways. He's going to let us in. I was talking to a gentleman out of a motorcycle club one time. He says, don't I, all I have to do is just be good, right? I think that if I do enough good things, God would just let me in. No, sorry, it doesn't work that way doesn't matter how good you are. You can never be good enough apart from Jesus Christ. Go with me to Exodus chapter 12, very quickly. In Exodus 12, and those are in your outline, not the verses, but just the, the chapters. So you can take it home and you can read it. And, and in Exodus 12, we talked about the Passover, right? Last week was the Passover, was the Seder. We celebrated it. And the Passover was this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So in the, in the Exodus, in the wilderness, God established Nisan as the first month of the year. 
And Nissan sometimes lands in March, sometimes it lands in April like it did this year. Depending on where the lunar calendar is at, it's the moon that gives the direction as far as the days for the most people, for the Jewish people, that's all they had. And then in verse 4, and if a, uh, in verse 3, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Again, we talked about that last week. On the tenth day of Nisan, uh, Yeshua, Jesus rode in on a donkey and they said, Hosanna on the highest. And the priests and everybody was indignant. They were indignant because of what they were saying. You know, he's just a carpenter. Man. What's he, why are you guys calling him Hosanna, King, uh, King Jesus? And, you know, and, and what he was doing is he was presenting himself. On that day, as you remember, everybody was to bring in their lamb and present it to the priest. And the priest would examine it. They would take it home until the 14 of Nisan. And when they took it home on the 14th of Nisan, it became their pet. They grew this attachment to it. And then on the day of 14, Nisan, they would take it in and they would slaughter it. And that was the blood. This is the beginning of the crucifixion. This is the beginning of such a, a horrible, a pain, painful experience that they knew somebody was going to have to go through. Paul is expressing these things, the things that the scriptures talk to us about. In verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You, sh- you, may, uh, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Remember, at 3 o'clock in the evening, the, h- the horns would blow and they'd start slaughtering these lambs on the 14th, which was the eve of 15. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it into two door- on the two door so- doorposts, and the lentils of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let some of it, and you shall let none, I'm sorry, of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste in the Lord's Passover. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beasts, and all the gods of Egypt, and I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when you see, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so what God initiated was the Passover, and they were told to do this. Over and over and over again. Every time they did it, it was supposed to be a learning experience. Teach your children and your children's children as to what it is that you have done. He did this in Numbers. He showed them in Deuteronomy. He showed them what it is the Passover is supposed to do and how they were supposed to partake of it. Basically what we did this last Saturday. But again, it was all pointing. They didn't see it. It was all pointing to Jesus Christ. Now turn with me to Psalms, the book of Psalms. Again, you open up your Bible right in the middle. You should land on Psalms. Uh, it's Psalm 22. This is right before the verse, the chapter of the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. And this is going to be very familiar to some of you, especially the first verse. The first verse is Psalm 22, verse 1. Do we have it? Everybody? Amen? Amen. It says here in verse 1. What does it say? Somebody. There you go. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? How, why is that familiar? Why does that sound familiar to you? Yeah. Jesus Christ. He, as he was hanging on the cross, one of the last seven sayings that he said was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only was he alone, not only did he feel defeated, not only was he man, he was man, he was human, but yet he sensed the, 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 the ability and the need to tell people you need to look at Psalm 22. He said, you know, back then we didn't have the chapters and verses until about the 15, 1600s. They started to separate some of these chapters and verses out of the books. It was just one long scroll. It was a one long letter. And so they started separating them and putting them in order. If you ever wanted to find Psalm 22, you always just started off by saying, Eloi, Eloi, uh, You know where that's at? Let's all turn to that. And they would turn to that portion of scripture because they knew where it was at. They knew what that meant. And Jesus is basically saying, read Psalm 
22. And when you look at this a little bit closer, you'll start to realize on how it was prophesied of this man, 800 years before Jesus Christ was even born, on how this man was supposed to die by sinful man. Look at verse 6. The writer says, but I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make the mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. If you remember the story of the crucifixion, the Pharisees are well by. Yes, you know, he trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him off of that. Yeah, if he thinks he's God, he thinks he knows all, he has all the power to do this. Let the Lord rescue him. Look at verse 14. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Remember the spear in the side, the water being poured out? 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Beloved, if that doesn't point you to the resurrection, I don't know what is not. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Jesus had this, as they mocked him, they put the crown of thorns on him. As they they laughed at him, they plucked his beard. They blindfolded him. They hit him. And they said, prophesy to us. Tell us, who hit you? And I can tell you one thing right now. That if he wanted to, he says, I know who you are. I know who you are, Demetrius. I know your father. I know your father's father. And I know your father's father. And as they scorned him, they, they scourged him. They beat him to a pulp. And all these things that they were doing to him. They, 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 they placed this crown of thorns on his head and they mocked him. Ah, hail the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, okay, well, let's write that on there, the king of the Jews. And the people, the Pharisees came and said, he's not the king of the Jews. Don't do that. Eh, whatever I've written, I've already written. I'm just going to leave it there. And they were all mocking him, not realizing they were fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament. See, when Paul says, as it is written in the scriptures, Paul is going back and showing them, this is what was talked about 800 years ago. This is supposed, it's supposed to happen this way. But, but why so cruel? Why on a cross? Because that's what they did. That's what they did. Turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter uh, 52. Isaiah is just a little bit going toward, yeah, well, actually a lot, going toward uh, the, uh, the New Testament. Isaiah 52. There's, there's many others. I'm just kind of pointing out a few. And in, in Isaiah 52... The Lord's coming salvation. He's talking about, right here, again, they're talking about the Israel is in captivity. They have captured them. They have taken them away from Jerusalem. They, they believe that God has left them because God is only at the temple. They don't realize that God is always there. And so what, what is taking place is Isaiah is prophesying. He's talking about how, what has to happen to the people of Israel. But he's also prophesying to a further prophecy of the man, which they call this, the, the, the man of sorrow. And in the man of sorrow, it says here in verse 13, it says this, Behold, my servant shall not act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ's body was so marred, so beat, so pulp, you, you couldn't even tell who he was. They couldn't see beneath all that blood and all the, the lashings that he took. Look at chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is the crucifixion being displayed. And Jesus Christ is believing it. And he's, he's, he's doing it. And it is being done to him. It's not that Jesus took the book of Psalms, okay, or the book of Isaiah also, and he says, okay, I got to follow this to a T. No, it was done. It was done to him. And everyone that was participating in the crucifixion, every one of them had no clue as to what exactly they were doing. None of them. None of them understood. None of them understood why it was that Jesus Christ had to be so beaten to a pulp, why he had to be nailed to a cross, why he had to be put up on a tree, per se. And, and the Jewish people thought anybody that's hung on a tree is cursed. Why did this man have to be so cursed? How could he be God to be cursed in such a way? Because he had to take the iniquity, the sin of every person that is his. It had to be public. It had to be seen. It had to be in the open. It had to be. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He could have. He could have said, this isn't right. This isn't fair. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Oh, no, he knew this is the way it's supposed to be. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for, his, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was buried in a borrowed tomb from a rich man, Josephus, Joseph, and he was hung on a cross with thieves. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That was God's will. Jesus Christ needed to be crushed. He needed to be crushed. It was God's will. He says, this is the only way. God the Father comes down as God the Son. God the Son recognizes and realizes everything that he has to do. Everything that needs to take place. In order for sinful man's sin to be dealt with. You see, because if someone doesn't deal with it, I have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with that sin. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. When he gives himself up as an offering, as he's looking forward, Isaiah is 750 years before Jesus Christ, and he's looking at this man of sorrow that has to take on the punishment of everyone that is his. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He poured out his life. He poured out for the sins of many. Not everyone, but the sins of many. The many that are the elect. And the elect are the ones that believe in Jesus Christ. Those that have placed their faith in Jesus. Now, now it's, it's, it's interesting how a lot of people say, well, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, that's good. I'm glad you do. But did you know that the devils even believe? The demons even believe. And a lot of people have what they call, what I call a demon faith. They have a faith of a demon. Like, for instance... When Jesus came on the scene in Gennesaret across the sea and this demon came forward and saw him and he proclaimed in a loud voice and he said, what do you, O son of the most high, have to do with us before the appointed time? And he said this as he fell down, prostrated himself onto the ground before Jesus Christ. This is the de- these are the demons called legion, many of them. 
They recognized Jesus. They had a good Christology. They recognized who Jesus Christ was. They knew who he was, the son of the most living high God. He was, he was the God Almighty himself. They had a, a good eschatology as well. I know that one day we are going to be cast to the bottomless pit. Before the appointed time, before the time that you send this out, what are you doing here now? We even know it's not this time. What are you doing here? As they bowed down and they worshiped Jesus. You see, a lot of you, a lot of people, they know Jesus Christ. They know he is the son of God. They know that there's an end coming. They will even come and worship. But they don't have the faith that God has required of you. It's a demon faith. And you know how you can tell? You know. Because you see, a person that loves God with all their heart hates wickedness, hates sin. And if you're comfortable in your sin, then it is more, more than likely that you have not yet come to the place where Jesus Christ has taken your sin and, and taken it on the cross. You see, the cross is so important to the Christian life. Because it recognizes, it helps you to recognize, I'm a sinner, I'm still a sinner. And, and I don't want to be in my sin. Every time I sin, I, man, I can't believe I did that. And it sickens me to death that I get away from it as much as possible. And I move forward. And I move forward. And I move forward. See, because number three in the back of your outline, God with the crown. You know, I wanted to read to you John chapter 1, verse 29. Because Jesus Christ, the, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He became this lamb. He was the suffering servant. He was the Passover lamb. He was the one that kept pointing toward this time of the crucifixion. John the Baptist recognized him without even knowing him and said, Behold, God told me that that is the lamb of the world. The lamb that you guys bring every year to the priest, that's him. You don't need to bring another lamb anymore because he will satisfy the penalty. See, with, with God with the crown is this, is the next verses in Philippians 2, 9 and 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee. God with the crown. This is Jesus Christ. He's coming back. He'll be here one day and he'll, he'll, he'll be crowned and, and every knee will see him and every knee will bow whether they like it or not. Just like the demons. They will bow and they'll say, yeah, he's God and I know where I'm going and I know what I've done. It doesn't have to be that way, beloved. It doesn't. You see, because when Jesus Christ came and right before he was crucified, right before he was lifted up high, in John chapter 14, he says to them, I go and I prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you with me. Because in my father's house, there are many mansions. And then somebody asked him, how do we know how to get there? How do we know how to get there? And then he says, in, in verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. You see, when God has to deal with sin... It's not because he's mad. It's not because he doesn't like you. It's not because, you know, you've decided that, you know, I mean, it's not because he's decided that I'm just going to pick these and not those. See, God is going to deal with sin because, well, because of what you've done. Not the bad things you've done. Those bad things are only the evidence of not having life. When you're connected to God, you have life. When you're disconnected from God, you have death. It's just that simple. When you're connected to God, you have life, and you please God. You work for God. You, you try to, to, to atone for your sin, and you try to help what it is that you've done and, and try to make things right. When, when you're connected to life, you have life, life eternal. Well, well look, let's look at these three real quickly. Jesus said, I am the way. Because when he said, I am the way, he says, look, this is the road that you need to be on. When you get on this road, you, are in the, you can fill in the sin. I am secure. Because this road that I'm on, this road that I've paid for you, this road that I gave you is the road that is going to get you there. Any other road. The Bible says there are many ways that seem right to a man, but there's only one way. And they all lead to destruction. All those other roads, as good as they may be. But Jesus says, I'm the only way. He's the only way. He's the only way to get to the Father. And when you're on that road, life makes sense. 
You know, there's a loss. There's, there's going to be a time when there's going to be a loss in your family that you are going to be persecuted, not because of something that you've done or something that they've done. There's going to be a loss in your life. There's going to be a threat to your life because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you know the way, when you know that you are on the right road, when you understand this, then it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ was on the right road. And he knew that he was being persecuted, falsely accused, falsely. He knew that all these things that were brought up against him were false charges. Yet he did not open his mouth, as Isaiah said. This had to happen. And he knew he's on the, when you are on the right road, when you're on the way that, that leads you to salvation, and you're walking on that road, and you're, you're focused on Jesus Christ, and people are ridiculing you. You're being persecuted because of what you believe in and who you believe in. It doesn't matter. They can threaten your life. They can threaten your family's life as long as you know that you are on the right road. Now, the ideal thing is to have your family alongside there with you as well. Because when you understand that, because he says, you see, I, I am the truth. You'll understand that everything else that is out there is not truth. You'll understand that what, the, what we just read in Isaiah, what we read in Psalms, what we read in the Old Testament, we understand that that is truth. That's what Jesus Christ came to fulfill. He came to die on this cross because it was prophesied that he would. It would have been nice if it had just says, you know, can, can we just, this is why Jesus prayed, but gave it to the Father right away. If there is any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. There was a moment of, you know, Lord, this is going to be painful, but I'm, not, I'm, going to, I'm just going to do what you called me to do. And there's a moment in your life where it's going to be painful, but you just got to do what God's called you to do. How do I know what God's called me to do? Well, when's the last time you've actually read this from cover to cover? When's the last time you've actually applied a lot of this, uh, the principles that are in Scripture? When's the last time that you've memorized what the Bible says about sin, about your life, about your family, about work? When's the last time that you've actually studied what it is that God wants you to do? It's right here. He's not hiding it from you. I am the way, Jesus says. I am the truth. And he says, I am the life. I have eternal life. You see, God, God has, he's a just God. He's a God that is just, but he's also merciful. He's, his, the cross, the cross explains his, just, his justice, is how he has to deal with sin. You don't want to be connected to life, then you're connected to death. It's as simple as that. And those that are connected to life, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. And he died on the cross and he had to give, and that's how he gives you eternal life. Not because you're good, not because you go to church, because you're born again. You must be born again. That's how it is. You must be born again. And if you're not connected to life, you're connected to death. And when God comes and he unveils his wrath and his righteousness, because he's just, he's not mad, he's not angry, he's not, you know, he's not unfair. You know, you're either with life or death. For the, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That is as simple as, you know, gravity. That's not something God just invented. It's just part of who he is. And if you sin, well, you have to pay the consequences. And thank God, and I praise him every day because he provided a sacrificial lamb for those that are his. That's why the crucifixion. I gave you a small portion of what the theological implication is of the crucifixion. And there's more. But I just gave you a real quick synopsis of what's in there, what the Bible says. And, and a lot of it, all of it points to Jesus Christ, every single bit of it. When, when, when Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain to have him sacrificed, that was his only son, his one and only son, took him up to the mountain. Isaac kept saying, where's the sacrifice? Abraham kept saying, God will provide. Isaac says, okay, well, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide. And then we get up to the altar, and he lays him on the altar and says, okay, God, uh, Abraham, okay, Dad, where's, where's the sacrifice? Don't worry about it, son. God will provide. He gets his hand out like this. And Isaac says, I guess I'm the one. And God provided a ram. And Abraham told Isaac, see, I told you God would provide. That was the picture. Isaac carrying the wood up the mountain, laying it down as a sacrifice. There, there are many stories, almost every story that you read about in the New Old Testament, you'll see Jesus Christ being portrayed. Paul took the people back and says, according to the scriptures, 
It had to be this way. When we get into the book of Philippians, we'll talk about that again. We're going to talk about it more in context of what the church and the unity of the church. I pray that you join us as we start the book of Philippians. Philippians is a very joyful book and it's a very exciting book. And I'm glad that we're able to start it together in this, in this new manner in the new year as far as our Christianity is concerned. Because from this point forward, it's all brand new. Amen? But here's the thing. You see, when this rich ruler, this Pharisee of the Pharisees, this teacher, one of the top teachers of the land, came to Jesus at night and asked him, he says, you know, uh, well, actually, he didn't even ask him. He says, you know, we, we know that you come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do. That's all he said. And Jesus answered the question that was in his heart. He says, verily, verily, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, twice he said, truly, truly. He says, I want you to get this. This is a point that you, my friend, Pharisee of the Pharisees, a student of the law, you understand this law. You must be born again. Because if you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That's just a plain fact. He didn't say, you must raise your hand or you must say a sinner's prayer. He didn't even say, you must be good. He didn't even say, you must go to church. He didn't even say, you know, you, you must even you know, you just believe. He didn't even say that. But we, we believe, we, we raise our hands, we pray, we, we, we believe in God, we, all those things we do because we are born again. He said, you must be born again. And that's not even an option. That's not even a suggestion. He said, you must. That's a command. You must be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand it. How, how am I going to be born again? Do I enter back into my mother's womb and come back out again? He goes, no, it's got to be done by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit continues to knock on your door until either you surrender or you flee. And either you surrender and you give your life to Jesus Christ, and he, or else every time you say no, he just hardens your heart. If that's what you want, God hardens your heart, and he hardens your heart, and he hardens your heart until it's virtually impossible to get in. Until God himself, the Holy Spirit, can break that, whatever it is that's holding you back, to give your heart to God. Because you must be born again. I can't get you saved. I can't make you saved. I can't do anything. I can't say a prayer for you. I cannot. I can't ask you to come forward and say a prayer. It's not a formula. It's something that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life right now. He's doing it right now. See, because this crucifixion that we celebrate, this crucifixion and this resurrection that we exonerate, we exalt, was done for you. And you connect yourself to life. And when you have life, you have eternal life. If you don't, automatic conclusion is death. And that's what he meant when he told Adam, if you eat of this tree, you will die. You will disconnect yourself from my fellowship. But God in his mercy provided a covering for Adam and Eve. Sacrificed an animal. Most people believe it had to be a lamb. And took the clothing, took the skin off the animals, made garments for them so they can cover themselves. God covered them in his mercy. He wants to cover you. That is his mercy. But he says, but you know, my, my justice, it has, to be, it has to be done. But I'm giving you mercy. And he gives it to you because of his amazing grace. Let me ask you to stand. I know we went through the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection in a different angle, different way that we've done in the past. But I really sense that we needed to get a theology behind it. An understanding of what the Bible teaches as far as why it had to be that way. And I pray that you were able to understand that and, and at least grasp a little bit of what was, what was said. Was said. And, and it's the only way. It's the only way. You can't do it on your own. It's, only, it's the only way. And Father, that's how you provided that lamp for us. And this, this morning as we gather together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you gave us your son, your one and only son. And it pained you, and, it, and just the aches and the pain and all that you had to do so. But you had a plan. And you spoke it into existence years ago. And you sent Jesus here to tell us what that plan was. And now you've left the Holy Spirit here to remind us. And that plan from the very beginning was to provide your mercy, your grace, your love, your amazing love, endless love. To give us salvation to sinners like me. 
the most vile and wicked person that I can ever think of. You gave me your love. And because of that, Lord, I want to give you back my life. And I thank you, God, that each one here is contemplating that and have not already have stepped across that line and have recognized that each one must be born again. So, Father, I thank you once again for this time. I pray that as we go and celebrate today with our family and friends, that we remember that this day is just not a day about picnics and bunnies and eggs. And I pray that as we celebrate today, we recognize and realize that you died for us, I pray. Thank you once again. I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen and amen. All right. Go out and have a great celebration today, friends and family. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Here you go.